this right here. Well, this morning we have Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Josh will bring one to you. And as we're doing that, and if you have a Bible, flip with me to Luke chapter 2. And as we're doing that, just a quick plug for our Christmas Eve service. Uh, This would be uh, Christmas Eve. If anybody needs to write that down, that's when Christmas Eve services happen. Uh, At 6 p.m., and this happens for one hour. This is a well-oiled machine. We are literally done in, in, I think last year we did it in like 58 minutes. And because we know that people have things to get off to and, and uh, Christmas traditions to attend. So this is one hour. It's a great time to bring friends and family. It's a candlelight service, and we are always packed on that service. So come a little bit early, grab a seat. It is a uh, great time. Well, last week we started this new series, a series with this idea that Christmas is more than just this baby in the manger. It's actually this cosmic battle. That, that it's actually this battle between God and Satan, and it started in heaven when, when God wanted to send his son to redeem the world, because Satan didn't like that very much. And so there was this battle that plays out, and we looked at last week where we saw this dragon and this woman, and there's this battle between the two of them, and they symbolized Satan and Mary, or all of Israel and the church, and this constant adversary that we have when we try and follow Jesus, and we looked at that out of Revelation chapter 12 last week. And the, this week, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. So if, like I said, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to that. But we lose the meaning of Christmas a little bit. You know, Christmas sometimes gets so wrapped up in consumerism, in materialism, that sometimes we lose the bigger meaning, the bigger picture of what is actually happening in the Christmas story. So I hope we do in these series in these next couple weeks is talk about that bigger picture of what is happening, this bigger cosmic battle that is happening all through Scripture that we see this. Because it teaches us so many different things about how do we live as a church and how do we act as Christians and how do we behave in this world. And so this morning, (coughs) excuse me, so this morning, you know, one of the things I, I think of every Christmas is, you know, as a pastor, People sometimes say, yeah, a baby was born in a manger, so what? What's the big deal? What's the significance? Who cares? I mean, sometimes you, you hear that as a pastor. We, we don't get the significance of all of this. So this morning, I hope that we'll do. So like I said, flip with me to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens. Again, if you need a Bible, Josh has some in the back. Just wave your hand around and he will bring you one. We're going to be looking Luke 2 verses 1 through 14. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Canarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee and Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because, <clears throat> excuse me, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven, and on earth peace on those whom his favor rests. We're going to pause there real fast. The first biggest words, it says right in the beginning, in those days, Caesar Augustus. We have to understand the, the setting of what was happening here. We have to understand that in this day, the Roman Empire ruled everything. They ruled everything from, all the way from Britain to India. We can't even begin to fathom how big this was. I mean, this was the biggest empire in the known world. They even owned islands and they owned parts of northern Africa. They owned things that just beyond the, the reach that's imaginable. And all in it, surrounded in it, was this guy named Julius Caesar. And we've probably heard this in, in maybe in like junior high or high school history, Julius Caesar. And he was murdered in 44 BC by some senators, right? He was mur- murdered, you know, beware the Ides of March, the, this whole thing. Julius Caesar was gaining so much power that there were some people who felt like he needed to be contained, he needed to be controlled, and so they murdered him. They stabbed him. They killed him. And to replace him and take his power was his son, or his adopted son, Octavian. This guy is a, is a kid who Caesar Augustus raised with him. He took him to the battlefront. He took him to all these different places that, that Julius Caesar went. He took him to the Senate so that he would know how to govern their country. Well, Octavian was engaged in this brutal war in order to keep Rome together because now Rome was divided and there was a civil war between Mark Antony and Cleopatra. We remember those names, right? Cleopatra apparently was the most beautiful woman that ever lived. That cannot be scientifically verified, but apparently that's the case. Um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra and Caesar Augustus, or at this point, Octavian. And the, the kingdom was divided right in half between their areas of power. And they would fight each other for 13 years. They would lose all their resources. They would put all their money into this. They would literally just battle and battle and battle. And eventually, Octavian won. Mark Antony uh, famously fell on his own sword as a way, as sort of an honorable way to die in the Roman Empire. Um, doesn't sound very fun, but it was in. But the point here is that Rome was in chaos for about 13 years, just complete chaos. And with war comes famine. With famine comes even more strife. Like the civil war in America, where there's brothers fighting against brothers. That's exactly how it was in the Roman world. And so when this all was settled, when Octavian finally won. There was an ushered, uh, an area, a time of peace that was ushered in called Pax Romana. You guys remember this from school, Pax Romana? But it, what does it mean? Peace of Rome. There we go. Nice and easy. Pax Romana. Peace of Rome. So the Senate is so appreciative of this new guy, Octavian, who's taken power, that this is what happens. There was this, the Senate was so appreciative that they gave him the title Caesar Augustus, which is a religious title that means divine one, the son of the deified one. So what happens is this. Like I said, it's, be, it's bewildering. It's hard to understand the, the, how brutal and terrible these wars were in all of Rome. 
It's difficult to understand this. So literally, this title means deified one, savior, prince of peace. It literally means that Augustus is the new savior of Rome. That's what that title means. Now, the Romans had a bit of a different idea of what peace was versus what we have an idea of what peace was. Now, they lived in relative peace after Octavian helped them solve this battle. After he won the war, they lived in relative peace. But what they still needed were resources and supplies. And so it was peaceful for Roman citizens. But if you lived on the outskirts of Rome, it wasn't peaceful at all. Well, here's a good example. Palestine, where Jesus was born and raised, was not peaceful at all. This was, the Roman government needed this as a buffer, a trade buffer. They needed that slot of land. And it was used as that trade buffer. And to give you an idea of what Pax Romana looked like to the Jews, it looked like this. Seraphis was a scene of revolt. It was about four miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. There was a general there named Varys um, who on the spot crucified 2,000 people who revolted against the Roman people. There was a Roman general named Cassius who enslaved 30,000 Jews. We have a record from the town of Emmaus where Jesus was walking and he was on the road to Emmaus. We have a, um, a record from the town of Emmaus that it was absolutely destroyed by the sword when there was even hints of a Jewish revolt there. Now, I want you to see that in these times in the Bible where it says, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree, this was a big deal. Caesar Augustus was the god of the land. In fact, there was an inscription that we found on a wall that's now a famous inscription, and, and this is what the inscription says. Um, and these are, uh, I'm shortening it because it's really, really long. It says, The most divine Caesar, who we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder, Caesar picked it up. Caesar has put an end to the fighting and is Savior. Having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of previous times. And the celebration of of the birthday of Caesar is, has been the beginning of good news. This is the same word that we get in the Greek for gospel. See, before there was ever a gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a gospel of Caesar Augustus. Before we ever celebrated Jesus' birthday, the world was celebrating Caesar Augustus' birthday. In fact, there was a 12-day celebration found within this inscription. There's a 12-day mandated celebration of of Caesar's birth called Advent. That's where one of the ways in which we get this term. So this was kind of like the king of propaganda here, is Caesar Augustus. Let me give you some of his names. He was called the Cosmic Savior, Heaven Shining Star, the God Augustus. You have to worship this guy. In some cases, you were killed. In some cases, you'd be severely punished. You could not escape his reach. This guy, literally, his reach was everywhere. Communities formed to worship him. And they had these little taxes and tributes and things that you would pay and say, I live at the will of Augustus. So I give you this history this morning, partly because we don't understand the, the, the complete revolution that Luke chapter 2 is. The revolution of Jesus coming on this earth. Because I think the entire point, when we ask the question, why is there so much language that's attributed to Jesus also attributed to Caesar Augustus? 
Why is it that there's so much New Testament language that, it, that is taken from Rome? Why is that? Because I think the entire point of the Christmas story, as we saw last week, the entire point of this Christmas story is to force us to choose. Which kingdom will we choose? Will we choose the kingdoms of this world or will we choose the kingdom of God? Which kingdoms will we choose? Luke tells us that during the reign of Caesar Augustus that there's this baby that's being born that's going to make all the difference. Luke is setting up this conflict of two kingdoms. He's setting up this this divine battle that's about to happen that actually takes place when, when Jesus is standing there with Herod, I'm sorry, not Herod, with Pilate. And Pilate says, I've got authority to take your life. And Jesus says, you have no authority unless it's given to you by my Father. He give, he's setting up this divine battle that will eventually take place on the cross and will be won in, in the grave when Jesus rises from the dead. But this is the setup of a major battle in the Bible, that Jesus is coming to the earth. Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, at just the right time, Christ appeared. Jesus appeared right at the same time when all of this was happening in human history. So I'm going to read some of this again, and we're going to keep talking a little bit about this and break some of this down. Uh, First, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and I just want you to listen to some of these words in this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This is the first census that took place while Canarius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth into Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. So the question is, you, you've got to tax somebody. If you've got the largest standing army in the world, you've got to tax people. And the, the reports that we have of the tax of Israel is, is widely varied. We don't really know what their tax rate was, but somewhere it's between 50 to 80% of your income was taxed in Israel. How many of you would want to live there <laughs> during April 15th, right? I mean, like tax time comes, you're like, I'm not first century Israel for me, right? So how do you know who to tax? They had to go to their hometown and register. They, had to, they humiliated their subjects by forcing them to pay a 12.5% tax just as a tribute to Caesar. And a tribute that the Romans saw was an act of worship. And so to the Jews, this was horrifying. This was abominable that we cannot pay 12.5% to, to Caesar because what this is saying is we live at his will. We live at his good graces. We live because Caesar allows us to live. That's, they hated this, but that was part of this tax. In fact, this is probably what drove, there was a party, a political party that rose up during this time called the Zealots. And here's what the Zealots did. The Zealots saw it as their religious and political duty. I'm not saying do this, by the way. This is terrible advice today. Uh, They saw it as a religious and political duty to assassinate members of the Roman government. And in fact, what they would do is they would wear big cloaks and they uh, they would have knives, uh, little daggers, and they would walk up behind a Roman official, stab him right in the back, and slip out of the crowd. That's what the Zealot Party was known for, by the way. It was a Jewish assassination party. This is why they rose up, though, 
because their taxes were beyond comprehension. People would just simply disappear from their houses. People would, would be taken at random. People were killed. It was like living in Nazi Germany. It was horrifying. This is the environment in which Jesus is born. Verse 8 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Just a little side note on this. There are many scholars who believe that when they're talking about the angels, who are, uh, I'm sorry, the shepherds who were nearby in Bethlehem, there are many scholars that believe that these were the temple shepherds. And the temple shepherds are different than any other shepherds. Because you have to understand what Judaism requires is a perfect sacrifice. So these were the shepherds more than likely, and we don't know this for 100% sure, so take it or leave it if, if, if you want. This isn't necessarily like 100% solid. But probably... These were the people looking for the perfect sacrifice. They were looking for the lamb without blemish. They were looking for the lamb that would remove Israel of all of their sins. And so an angel shows up to them, and the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy. And the words that Luke uses here, we we literally translate into English as mega joy. I bring you mega joy. Because your job, what you're looking for, this whole idea of the perfect sacrifice, it was just born, and it's in a manger down over there. I don't think it's a, it's a mistake at all that the angels use Roman terminology, good news. Eu galion, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. See, the angels were trying to say something here. In the Roman world, Caesar's good news was not for everybody. Caesar's good news, the good news of Caesar that there was peace was just for Roman citizens. But for Jesus, when Jesus is born, it's good news for all the people. And so they're making this point here. The angels are making this point that Jesus will be bigger than Caesar Augustus. That his good news will range for all of the people. Then it says in verse 11, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. What we need to understand is that people would get killed for saying this. This is not something that you could just simply say out in public. Because there had already been a number of Messiahs. If you look at Acts chapter 5, there's this whole debate going on. And this debate is among Jewish leaders. And they talk about Jesus. And they're saying, you know what? If this guy's Jesus it really is from God then, you know, this will actually carry on. The church will actually continue to live. If not, they're going to just rise up and be overthrown like all the other messiahs. There were other messiahs of Rome, that have, or of, of uh, Israel, that had come during this time. These are the people I'm talking about that were crucified in Nazareth. These are the people that were completely wiped out and slaughtered. A common messiah thing to do would be to go to the Roman garrison that was located at the temple and wipe them out and begin your revolt as a Messiah. The Jews were looking for a military leader. Instead, what they got was this baby, wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. But wasn't there already peace? Didn't Caesar already bring it? 
Didn't Caesar already have peace? One of the great things about this is that in early on, one of the things that w- would happen is that Roman, um, the Roman soldiers would walk into towns and they would have people like trumpeters and they would have proclaimers, people who were out in front of them. And they would proclaim that Caesar was about to come into your town. And the words that were spoken were glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to, to men whom, on, on whom who Caesar's favor rests. And they would proclaim this over and over and over again because Caesar was entering your town. They would proclaim this night and day. But the, when the angels came, when the angels came uh, talking about Jesus and saying glory to God in the highest of heaven and on earth peace in those whom his favor rests, they are literally stealing words out of the mouth of these Roman soldiers. Why? Because the entire story of Jesus being born is set up for us to ask the question, which kingdom are we going to serve? Are we going to serve ourselves and our selfishness? Are we going to serve God and his greatness and his selflessness? Are we going to serve the kingdoms of this world? Or are we going to serve the kingdom of God? Which kingdom are we going to serve? I think this is the biggest question of Christmas. It's a battle raging for your attention, raging for your minds. The Christmas story is not just some tame, idealistic look into this sweet baby and sweet mother, although it is that, but it's not just that. It's the story of God sending His Son, born in the midst of repression, dealing with death, dealing with um, just horrifying times in this time of Israel. This was a divine revolt in a time where Caesar already proclaimed himself as God. This is a divine revolt. This is what Christmas is. Christmas is not just some tame thing. It's a divine revolt. See, as the church would grow up, as the church would begin to follow Jesus, as the church would begin to take these things to heart and actually believe what happened with Jesus, as the church would begin to do this, they would begin to do some very countercultural things. They would begin to forgive people. They would begin to forgive their enemies. They would begin to pray for people. They would begin to be restored with people. All of this is absolutely revolutionary at the time. I mean, what could be more powerful than a group of first century Galileans saying, Jesus is God, Caesar is not, his peace is a fraud, Jesus is Lord. And then we ask the question when it comes time to Christmas time, how do we want to raise our kids? How do we want our kids believing? How do we want to raise uh, um, up this new generation of Christians? I mean, most of us buy into the idea that believing that we pray a prayer, we read our Bibles, we come together, we sing songs, and, and one day we'll be in a happy place together. And I think that's the dominant Christian narrative. And, and that's right. I mean, there's nothing wrong about going to heaven after. That's not what I'm talking about here, but there's nothing wrong with that. The point is, we're called to live like Jesus now. We're called to live like him right now. And I think that's what Christmas Christmas reminds us of. This idea of revolution is all through the Christmas story. So I think the question is, 
which kingdom is it for you? Which kingdom will you serve? Jesus comes proclaiming his kingdom, but there are already so many other kingdoms in this world. And then, you know, it's something that I always thought that, just personally, like that I benefited from Jesus coming. But what he's saying is, you're a part of my coming. You're a part of the revolution. You're a part of this. And this is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus flips the ethics of the world on its head and says, you are a part of this. The Christmas story is an act of rebellion to the Caesars of this world. Where the Caesars of this world say, take revenge, and where the Caesars of this world say, it's all about your happiness, Jesus says, forgive. Where the Caesars of this world say, it's all about your happiness, Jesus says, it's all about sacrifice and serving. So what is the meaning of the Christmas story? I think the meaning of the Christmas story is that there's this cosmic battle and we have to choose sides. And who are we going to do battle with? Are we going to be in God's kingdom or are we just going to slip right into some other kingdom all together? Will you be a revolutionary? I think the meaning of Christmas is that I will not bow down to another Caesar. The world doesn't need another Caesar. What the world needs are more revolutionaries. And how do we figure out how to do this? I love when Jesus was coming, John the Baptist is proclaiming his coming. He's his cousin, and he's out in, dressed in, in camel's hair and eating locusts, and he's eating honey. He's a wild dude. And he's out proclaiming Jesus' is coming. And, and people go, oh my goodness, if this is true, that the Savior of the world is coming, then what do we do? I mean, I, I love that question. I mean, that's a, such a perfect question. And, and John just doesn't even skip a beat. He says, if you have two tunics, give one away. If you collect taxes, don't collect more than you're required. I mean, literally, that would have been a revolutionary thing. Simply be honest. Tell the truth. Live like God asks you to live. I mean, essentially, what John the Baptist is doing is saying, look at the Ten Commandments, live that way. That's a great way to live. So how will you be a revolutionary? I want to give you a couple options in how our church can be revolutionary in this Christmas time. Well, actually, after Christmas time. There's, there's two different things. One in Christmas, one after. First, in Christmas time, our board has had a lot of discussions about money and finances and all that stuff. And one of the things that we agreed upon as a board is this. We said, you know what? We're going to ask and we're going to call for people to give a little bit more during this season. We're going to ask people to do that because we need we need money as a church. We need to, to function. Lights need to go on. Programs need to happen. All this stuff. But we're not going to do this without doing some sort of mission-based giving. And so we decided that our Christmas Eve offering would entirely go to starting a new church. I know that got your heads right, right? My, our friend Jeremy, who came and preached here um, a, a couple months ago, uh, Jeremy Robertson, he's a Wesleyan pastor has been in the process of starting a brand new church called Movement Church, and that is in, um, in uh, Placentia. And they're doing well, and they have all these needs. And one of the things we thought of was, hey, what if we could actually bless a new church? Out of our, yes, we have financial difficulty, but what if on Christmas Eve we could ask for an offering that entirely goes to that? New churches grow faster they lead people to Christ faster. 
And they're a huge impact on the community. And so we, we said, okay, we need to do something outside of ourselves, something revolutionary. So we're going to work with this other church on giving an offering to plant a new church. And so we wanted to tell you about that and, and say, hey, that could be a revolutionary thing that we do. Yes, we need to figure out money and all that stuff, to, but we also need to help new churches get started. The other thing, you're going to hear a lot about this. There's been a little movement brewing in our men's ministry of backpacks for the homeless. We have a couple guys that, I mean, this isn't like necessarily uh, something that, that filtered through our board or anything like that. We just have a couple guys who say, I'm passionate about this. What can we do? And they want to help homeless folks with stuff, you know, like uh, toiletries, all that stuff. And we're, after Christmas, we're going to give you a list. And we're going to have just a little box in the back. And if you've got any of this stuff laying around your house, we've got some guys who are going to assemble it. And if you want one, give you a backpack to put in your car to give to people in need throughout this cold weather season. It's sort of a way to help people in the cold. So there's a million ways in which we can be revolutionary with God's kingdom, in God's kingdom. But the chief question is, which kingdom are we going to serve? The kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of God? And I think that you know in your world which kingdoms those are. So maybe it's the kingdom of money. Maybe it's the kingdom of giving. There's so many different contrasting ways to look at that. But I just want to invite you to that this morning and ask you to pray with me. Father, Lord, I pray that we would be kingdom revolutionaries for you. God, that we would be the kind of people who speak your word powerfully. Lord, that we would be the type of folks that help other people see your revolutionary ways. God, when somebody comes up to us and, and maybe at work and somebody offers a criticism and we return that with joy and love, Lord, would it cause a turn of the head because we serve this child that was born in this manger that changed everything for us. Lord, I pray that as we think about which kingdom we serve, Lord, would that just simply be a theme that pervades through our entire life? In our, in our daily life, we could ask ourselves the question, what kingdom are we serving right now? Lord, help us to follow you in ways that are simply powerful and revolutionary in this world and this Christmas season. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.